Thank you for joining us at Key Life Fellowship for our pulpit ministry podcast. Each sermon on this podcast is from our 11 a.m. Sunday service. We are glad that you have joined us digitally, but would love to see you in person on Sunday mornings at either 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. Now, let's open God's Word and ask Him to reveal His truths for our lives. Amen. As you are taking your seat, if you would, turn to Peter's first epistle. That's 1 Peter, and we are in chapter 1. We looked at one half of one verse last week, and we are going to look at the second half of that verse, and then we're going to travel on into verse 2 today. We're going to cover most of that. As we look at this passage of Scripture, we saw last week Peter, the restored failure. And what an encouraging message for me, a restored failure. And if you are in Christ, you too are a restored failure. You were a sinner on your best day. And he has reconciled you by his sacrifice to a holy God. And that is the only hope of restoration and reconciliation that we have. And we saw that Peter, understanding that, was fulfilling what Jesus had called him to do. There in verse 1 where he said, Peter... Petros, the rock, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He knew who he was. He was confident of that. We know as we looked at the life of Peter, he was not always confident of that. He was always finding himself wavering, doing stupid things, putting his foot in his mouth, majoring on minors instead of focusing on Christ. Yet we saw last week when Peter was restored, he is now doing what Christ restored him to do. He's feeding the sheep. He's writing to the church here, as we're going to see, to those who belong to the church, giving them instructions that he received directly from Christ during Christ's earthly ministry. We're going to be looking at a topic today in a message entitled, The Elect of God. You know what many of you do? You cringe at the very word, elect, because you have inadvertently and, and so many times been taught because of people's ignorance and their lack of scriptural knowledge, you have been taught that any kind of election, predestination, choosing, those things are all bad. Many of you have been taught to despise the things that we are going to see are so clearly embraced in the Word of God. The one that we are going to come to today, and and that's why I love to preach expository sermons. Because you don't get to skip around and preach what's easy. You come to the difficult topics and you preach them. And you learn and you grow through them. You study the scriptures that confirm them. You become confident in the truth of the word of God. And so we come to this difficult topic. It's difficult because many people want to sort it out with their emotions, with their feelings with their human minds. You're going to see something this big, something this magnanimous, you will not be able to fully understand with your human mind. But you must accept it as the word of truth, as it is defined in the word of God. So we will be be talking about God's sovereign election today. Unfortunately, it is a most hated doctrine among many. Among those who want to strip God of his sovereignty, perhaps reducing God's sovereignty to something less than Scripture defines it as, those who want to be in the driver's seat, want to be in control of salvation and their eternity, they will frown on this doctrine, but you can't erase it from the Bible. How many of you agree that this is God's infallible, inerrant, Holy Spirit-inspired word of truth. How many of you believe that? Then, As we see the word of truth unfold, I would ask that you lose your traditions, that you lose your feelings, that you lose your thought injustices, and that you embrace Scripture alone today. Many will say, Kirk, if you're preaching a message of sovereign election, 
Aren't you making it difficult for people to be saved? No. The message of sovereign election makes it impossible for people to be saved without God's grace. That's why His grace is so amazing. I want us to see that clearly today. And I want us to embrace the truth. And in doing so, our view of God will increase and our view of us will decrease. And we will find ourselves on our knees or on our faces glorifying Him for the grace that He has shown us in Christ Jesus that He did not have to show us, but that He chose to show us. First Peter, he says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect. For all the people who don't want to talk about election, he just called a group of people right off the bat, God's elect. He says, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He's talking about places that were located in Asia Minor in those days. He says this in verse 2, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and sprinkled by His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Those who are the elect, grace and peace, it is for them in abundance. And we're thankful for that. But Peter is addressing this group that he calls God's elect. And he calls them strangers because they are strangers, they are scattered, and they are strangers also of this world, because when we are in Christ, this world is no longer our home. We don't belong here. Our citizenship is in heaven. We have an inheritance there that is kept for us, as we will see Peter write about that soon. An inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. And so he's writing to this group of people, God's elect. Strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. I want us to look at that first as we jump off into this topic of election, as we discover who God's elect really are and why are they considered His elect. I'm not talking about what Brother Lovejoy taught you when you were a child in error. I'm talking about what the Apostle Peter, who received a direct command from Christ to go feed my sheep, what is he teaching us about sovereign election? Let us look at that today. I want us to see first the reason for election. The reason. He calls them God's elect. And he says that they're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. They're gods. They belong to Him. And they are chosen. You are elect if you are in Christ because of God's sovereign choice, not because of a choice that you made. Please note that Peter didn't say to God's elect, those who choose God. He doesn't say that. He doesn't even allude to that. In fact, he doesn't even mention that. In fact, it's not a teaching that you will find if you keep things in context anywhere in the New Testament. He says you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You are chosen because of God's sovereign choice. That word chosen, the same word that we see that he uses for elect there in the first verse, that word chosen in the second verse, same word in the Greek, eklektos. And what eklektos means is this. It means to pick out, select, or to choose. It means that it is an act of the one who is doing the choosing. In fact, we see in Matthew chapter 22, verse 14, it says this. He's okay. It says this. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Many are invited, but few are eclectos. What is he saying? He's saying that the general call of the gospel goes out to the multitudes, right? I'm going to preach to hundreds today. It's going to go out to the multitudes, but not all are going to hear beyond hearing with their ears. 
because they are spiritually dead. And unless they be born again, they can't know the things of the Spirit. And so when we see this here, we see that God is behind the choosing. Many are invited, but few are chosen. Many people read over that passage and just ignore it as if it's not there. They're invited, just as Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Who comes to him for rest? The elect, the chosen. He draws them unto himself, shows them that they are wearied and they are burdened and they are in need of rest. Oh, they hear the general call of the gospel, but then something else happens. He chooses them. In fact, he chooses them and calls them based on a choosing that occurred solely by his sovereign will in eternity past. God does not wait until you choose him to choose you. Well, how many times have we heard that error spewed from pulpits who are biblically illiterate? That would mean that we are now in the position of sovereign, and he is in the position of serving us. When, when we tell you what we want you to do, God, you jump and act and do as we tell you to do. However, that is not what Peter is teaching here. He is teaching that the reason for election is God's sovereign choice based solely upon God's sovereign will. Remember the conversation that Jesus had in John chapter 15, verse 16, talking to his disciples? He says this to them in verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. You did not eclect us, me, but I eclect us, you, and appointed you to go and bear fruit that will last. And then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name, because you belong to me. He made it very clear. It ought to be very clear to us. Oh, we saw it last week when we talked about the life of Peter, the calling of Peter, his brother Andrew, the Zebedee brothers, shortly after them, we know that the Lord came to them as they were cleaning their nets there on the shore of Galilee. And he chose them, come, follow me. It didn't say that Peter and his brother Andrew were running around frantically looking for Jesus. Jesus came to them. We're going to see why he did in just a moment. But it's all because of God's sovereign choice. He chose us before the foundations of the earth in eternity past. I know that's a big thing for us to try and comprehend. You won't fully comprehend that because you can't fully comprehend the mind of God. But what you can do is you can know that Scripture is true. When Peter addresses these believers here in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, he addresses them as those selected, handpicked, chosen by God. It's because of God's sovereign choice. He doesn't choose you based on anything that you do. That wouldn't even fit the definition of the Greek word that we have looked at that means to pick out or to select or to choose. He doesn't choose you based on you choosing him. He doesn't choose you based on the fact that you are choosable. In fact, if we were all to be honest, we're awful apart from Christ, sinners by our very nature. He doesn't choose us based on anything that we do. It doesn't fit. But as we read in our Scripture reading in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul teaches it like this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him. Whenever we walked an aisle and prayed the sinner's prayer. No, it doesn't say that. It says, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world. What did he choose us to be? To be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons. Now, some of you have adopted children. Now, you didn't just take whichever one the adoption agency told you to take. Hey, I got one for you. What well, can I know a little about him? Nope, he's on his way to your house right now. No, you chose and selected the child that you desired to bring into your home and to raise. Do you have more rights than a sovereign God? Stands the reason that when he says this, that he 
has adopted us as sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. He chose to the praise of his glorious grace, which is freely which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. It is God who has chosen you by his own desire to be one of his children. You're appointed to this position. This position is not earned. Well, so many people think that they earn this position, right? Where you do something good, you join a church, you get baptized, you even take communion and sign a, a, a membership card. And because of that, you're now part of the family of God. Can I tell you this, that biblically it does not work like that at all. In fact, you are appointed unto salvation by God himself. In fact, Acts chapter 13, verse 48 makes this very clear. The apostles were there preaching, and it says this in verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. They were preaching to the Gentiles. The Gentiles had never been included in anything of God. They were without hope and without God, according to Ephesians chapter 2. It says, but they heard the word, and they honored the word. They heard the general call. They didn't reject the general call. They listened. They said, could it be that this grace is for us? Now watch what he says next in the Word of God. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. You know what that means? There were some there in that crowd that day who were not appointed to eternal life. And they did not believe. They stayed in their state of rejection they ignored and rejected the general call of the gospel, come unto me, all you who are heavy, a burden and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And they said this, I don't need that. Because that's what man says in his natural state of rejection. I don't need God. I don't need Christ. Yet those who were appointed unto salvation, they believed. The reason for election is because of God's sovereign choice. He does the choosing. But it's based on God's set foreknowledge. And I want to talk about his set foreknowledge because there's been so much confusion in evangelical thinking for quite some time, and that confusion needs to be straightened out, in my opinion. When we look at that word, foreknowledge, right? Because he says this, that you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The Greek word is prognosis, which we get our word, right, prognosis from. And what that means is that it is to foreknow, but it's deeper than that. That word gnosis by itself is an intimate word. It is how Adam knew his wife Eve. It is that deep of a knowledge. And what we see when we see the word foreknow and foreknowledge, we see that God intimately foreknew us. He foreknew us in an intimate way before the foundations of the earth. That's the proper biblical definition of that. The reason that I share with you the proper biblical definition, because I have, as a believer, sat many times where you are sitting and heard several unbiblical definitions of what foreknowledge is. In fact, I heard a local pastor not too long ago try to rewrite what the definition of foreknowledge in election is using this same passage of Scripture. And he failed miserably. In fact, I was embarrassed for him because he had nowhere to turn. You know this, the people who won't believe in sovereign election eventually back themselves in a corner that they can't get out of. We don't have to be there. We can see foreknowledge for what it really is. To know what it really is, let's talk about what it's not. Because so many people as I said, are confused because they use a man-made definition. And they, they use this man-made definition out of refusal to believe in God's sovereign grace and election and salvation. They think to themselves, well, surely man's got to play at least a little part in this. Surely I ought to be in control of something. 
Oh, please know where that thought process stems from. That stems from your prideful, sinful nature. You are in charge and in control of nothing. And it is our God who is in charge and in control of everything. And so what foreknowledge is not, as many have misdefined it, carelessly at best, and heretically at worst, they attempt to say this, that God and his foreknowledge is this. God looking down the halls of time and seeing that Kirk Hall at some point makes a decision to follow Christ. And because I've made that good decision, what he does then is somehow goes back and retrofits that in eternity past so that I can be one of the elect. And so my election under their own definition of foreknowledge is not based on anything that God does. It's based on everything that I do. I walked an aisle. I prayed a prayer. I was baptized. I joined a church. However, the problem with that, there are many problems. The first one is this. God doesn't have to look down through the halls of time to know what's going on. Can I tell you there's nothing that goes on in your life that he hasn't already seen? He's not up on his throne shocked all the time. Scripture tells us that he knows the beginning from the end, and he knows everything in between. So why would a God who is an all-knowing, omniscient God have to look down through our economy, time, an economy that he does not work in or operate in, he would have to look into our economy and see that we did something good by choosing Christ and then say, because you chose Christ, I'm choosing you. What kind of election is that? That's not election at all. You know what that is? That's works salvation. That is you doing something to earn God's approval. And when you did that right thing that your denomination defined for you was the right thing, wrongly, then God says, I choose you. You're now one of the elect. The only problem with that is the elect were chosen in eternity past before the foundations of the earth. And Scripture confirms that over and over again. So that dog will not hunt. That theory will not work. God doesn't have to look down into time. It's a bad definition of foreknowledge. I'll tell you how bad it is. In fact, Peter does. If you look at verse 20 here in the same chapter. Peter gives us proof that that's not a good definition of foreknowledge, that God has to look down through time and see you make a good decision and then accredit that somehow as your election. Verse 20 says this, He has chosen, He was, excuse me, chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. It's referring to Christ. Now, if we were to take the definition that many try to use for foreknowledge in verse 2 and election and try to apply it there to Christ, it would look like this by their own hermeneutic. That is how they're interpreting Scripture. That's what a hermeneutic is. Now, it would look like this, that Jesus came as a regular man, and he died on a cross. And because God the Father saw, as he looked through the halls of time, Jesus dying on a cross, he said, you know what? I'm going to choose that one to be the Messiah. I'm going to choose that one to be the Savior of the world. You would say to that, that is the most foolish thing that I have ever heard, wouldn't you? Yes. But if you jump just 18 verses back up to where we started and apply the same hermeneutic, you're in trouble, aren't you? Now, do this. Apply what Peter's actually saying. Was Christ chosen to be the Messiah by God the Father before the foundations of the earth? Yes. Were the elect chosen by the sovereignty of God, by his own wise counsel in eternity past, before the foundations of the earth? Yes. And any other hermeneutic operation of interpretation is a bad one. Because I've heard people try to say that this verse right here in, chapter, in verse 2 of chapter 1, Talking about the foreknowledge of God is simply God looking down through time, and because you made the right choice, Jesus, I mean, God the Father then chooses you because you chose Jesus. That would be the same as God looked down through the halls of time and saw that a man named Jesus was going to die and said, Aha, my Messiah. Let us not be foolish in our interpretation. 
Let's be consistent across the board if we interpret that word because that word in 20, chosen, eklektos, the same word that we see in one for elect and in two for chosen. So foreknowledge is rightly defined as God for knowing those he desires to choose. It's foolish to think otherwise. Yet, as we have seen, people will completely change the meaning of the word foreknowledge to fit their agenda. Can I say this to all of you who do this? Stop changing the word of God to suit your feelings. And rightly divide the word of truth as we are instructed in the scriptures to do. See it for what it really is. And don't make any apologies. We don't have to apologize for God, right? We don't have to apologize for God because he has an ability to foreknow and we don't. We don't have to apologize for God when he chooses some to salvation and he passes over others. We don't have to apologize for God. That's what scripture teaches all the way throughout. So I don't know if I believe that. Ask Noah. Ask Noah and ask Ham, Shem, and Japheth and their wives. Ask them if God sovereignly chooses to save some, right? We'll all talk about it. We love to hear a message about, about how Jesus is a type of ark. The ark pointed to Christ. How God did all these things by grace, through faith. Let's look at it all completely. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord when he was still a drunkard. God graced him with righteousness. Noah was sovereignly chosen by God for God's purpose. And only his family was saved. The whole rest of the world totally annihilated by the deluge. You remember the story, don't you? You know, it's interesting that no one gets mad about God's sovereign election there, but it's obvious, isn't it? What about when God chose to build a nation from a man named Abram, who later became Abraham? Nobody's whining about, why didn't he choose Bob? Because God has the right to choose what he desires. And he chooses it based upon his foreknowledge, what has already been determined in his mind. Let me just go on and tell you this. People will hate you when you embrace this doctrine. They'll call you all kinds of ugly names that start with C. They will despise your teaching. I'm here to tell you this. I don't answer to any of them. I will answer to God for the things that I teach. When they are so clearly defined in Scripture as this, I cannot go around this and not teach it to you, the people who have been entrusted to me. I cannot go around this and not preach it with accuracy and integrity to the truth that it represents here. You see, the reason for election, simply put, God the Father. Oh, we're going to see the Trinity at work in redemption here in election the saving of the lost sinner. We see first, first the Father choosing those who he will save according to his set foreknowledge. The second thing that I want you to see, and we must hurry, is this, the revealer of election. He says in verse 2, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Well, please focus on that statement, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who reveals those who the Father has chosen. He reveals this through what we know as the effectual calling of the elect. It is beyond a general calling. The general calling, as I've already said, penetrates your ears. The effectual calling penetrates your heart, the depths of your being is what God uses, the power of the Holy Spirit to bring you to regeneration, to quicken you to the new birth. This is the Holy Spirit's first role in the life of the believer, the effectual call. And we see this very clearly in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. We're going to read the Bible a lot today. I hope that's okay. Verse 29, it's interesting, all the people who tried to re give a rebuttal for sovereign election can't use a whole lot of Scripture. I had to remove some just so that we would have enough time to get you out of here by two. 
Romans 8, 29 says this, For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. I want you to see that He's talking here about the effectual call. How do I know it's the effectual call? Because it produces an effect. What is the effect? Justification, right? Is that not what he says? Those he called, he also justified. What else? Glorification and everything in between. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, the structure of this in the Greek, please pay attention, is written in the past tense. That means this, when you read this, it is as good as if it has already happened. Those who are chosen and called by God are as good as glorified. And there is nothing that is going to get in the way of that. Not you, not me, not anything. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. He draws you. Is that not what Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 44? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. How does the Father draw us? He draws us by His Holy Spirit. He draws us unto salvation in Christ. John 6, 44, in case you missed it. Peter understood this. Peter, the one writing this, understood the effectual calling. Matthew chapter 16. There at Caesarea Philippi, we know the story, we know the incident. Many people are saying many things about who Christ is. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah. Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Peter says this. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 16. Verse 17, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And how does the Father reveal these things to us? Through His Spirit. The natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit. That's what's going on here in the life of Peter. He is seeing who Jesus is. Why? Because the Spirit is sovereignly regenerating him because he was chosen before the foundations of the earth. That is the effectual call. The Spirit at regeneration or the new birth. He calls the elect. And he then positionally sanctifies them into a new life, into a new birth. He is the revealer of election. Well, I'm so thankful for that day when I was 14 years old when the Holy Spirit revealed to me that God chose me before the foundations of the earth. Well, did I fully understand that at the time? No. But I understood this, that the Holy Spirit was quickening me to new life, that my old life was going away and all things were becoming new, and that Christ was my Savior and my Lord, and I bowed in my heart to Him, and He exchanged my heart of stone for a heart of flesh. My life was forever changed. Well, later on, I saw how big that was, and I studied the Scripture to know that that came because God foreknew me in eternity past. He wasn't just going to let me waver in my sin. He wasn't going to let me spend an eternity in hell. Well, he had another plan for me, and that plan was to rescue me. And on that day, the Holy Spirit sovereignly regenerated me to new life so that I could believe. That's what the Scripture teaches over and over and over again. So many times people get it backward. They want to jump straight to John 3.16. Please don't jump straight to John 3.16 if you don't read the rest of John chapter 3. You're doing yourself an injustice. Read the first part of John chapter 3, verse 3, in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. It says this, in reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. He's talking about the new birth. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Nicodemus thinking like a human. I just don't think it's fair that God elects some, not others. Thinking like a human. Nicodemus asked, surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. Who gives the new birth, the Spirit. He is the revealer of election. Those God sovereignly foreknew in eternity past and has 
predestined unto salvation. It is the Holy Spirit in due time, in fact, at the appointed time, who reveals to them the new birth, regeneration. He said, you should not be surprised at my saying. You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound. You cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. He said, the wind comes. You don't see it coming. It comes. And it does what it came to do. And you will see the results of the new birth that the Spirit brings in your life. That first result will be belief and faith in Christ. Repentance of sin. Spirit regenerates as the revealer of election, showing us that we have been chosen by God. You say, well, have I been chosen by God? Have you been born again? Have you been born again? Because the born again have been chosen by God. Has a new birth occurred in your life? Titus chapter 3 says it like this. Verse 3, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. How did he know me? We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Because we did something righteous. We walked an aisle. Went to church. Prayed a sinner's prayer. No, please read that with me. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us. He saved us. Who's doing the saving here? He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal. Watch this. By the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the revealer of election. He is the one who reveals to us and quickens us. And the rebirth happens in us because of his Holy Spirit. He called you. He quickened you. It says in verse 6, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Paul teaching Titus makes it very clear about the new birth. It is the Spirit revealing the fact that we have been chosen, not because of anything that we had done, but because of God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 defines this for us beautifully. Verse 13, Paul says to those in Thessalonica, but we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. It is the Spirit who sanctifies and set us, sets us apart before we can ever believe. Did you see that? You're going to see it more clearly in a second. And through belief in the truth, He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The revealer of election is the Holy Spirit. He does this by effectually calling us to Christ, who are the elect, but then by effectively setting apart the elect. He sets us apart. Just as he said there, he is the one who sanctifies. He says, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. It is the Spirit's work to sanctify us setting us apart from the world. Both positional sanctification and practical sanctification. You say, well, what is that and what is the difference? Sanctification is simply this, the setting apart. He sets us apart, and he sets us apart as holy ones because wasn't that his intention to raise up a holy people? We're going to see that even more clearly as we study through this epistle further. But what we see is this, he sets us apart positionally first through the new birth, through revealing to us that we are gods. And then he sets us apart practically, sanctifying us as we walk through this life. Because we have been set apart through regeneration, he will not let us return back to our old life because it is he who has given us new life. Aren't you thankful for the constant indwelling of the Holy Spirit to remind us that we have been sanctified and to watch your position, that state, that you're in, to watch it begin to change. From a person who was once a sinner in your old life and in your new life, you are now living out the righteousness of God in and through Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
He says, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. It's God who foreknows us and chooses us through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. It's the Spirit who effectively calls the elect and effectively sets us apart. Setting us apart from the world. As John chapter 15 tells us, he has set us apart from the world. Watch what he says there in verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Was Christ set apart from the world? Yes. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Eclectos, I have eclectos you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. But as the Spirit reveals that to us, that we have been chosen out of the world. Not only have we been chosen out of the world, and the Spirit confirms that, reveals that to us, it is by His Spirit that we are ushered out of darkness, the darkness of sin, the darkness of deceit and evil. We are ushered into His marvelous light, into righteousness and truth. In fact, 1 Peter 2, 9, verse that I have already alluded to, let's look at it. We will further study it in a few weeks. But it says this, but you are a chosen people. How could you be a chosen people that wasn't chosen? That would absolutely make no sense, would it? A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. How did he do this? The effectual call of the Holy Spirit upon your life, the effective setting apart that he procured for you through the new birth. He places the believer, in Christ. It's a positional shift. You were in sin, you were in the world, now you are in Christ. He moves you from that sin, wickedness, into righteousness, a change in behavior that will set us apart for the rest of our lives. How do we know that this change is real? Because Paul says that this change is real in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. And why are you a new creation? As we step back for a second and look at the big picture, you're a new creation in Christ because God sovereignly in eternity past foreknew you and elected you unto salvation. The Spirit then revealed that unto you that you are and were chosen by God. And He set you apart through the new birth. A new creation. Well, you can't be a new creation with an old birth. Can you? Some of you are attempting to try to be a new creation and you've not been reborn. It's not ever going to happen. It's the Spirit who reveals election unto us. It's the Spirit who regenerates us unto salvation and new life. Thirdly, we see this. The last part of verse 2, he says, Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkled by His blood. We've seen the reason for election, the revealer of election, the reason, God the Father, the revealer, God the Holy Spirit, and I want us to look at the results of election for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. I told you this is Trinitarian. What a picture of the Son here for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkled by His blood. I want you to pay attention to the order of this before we move any further. The order of this, as we see in verse 2, says you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. For obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkled by His blood. Many people in error think that that works opposite of that. Jesus saves, the Spirit renews and regenerates. And then because of that, God has chosen you. Can I pose this today, that we not rewrite the Scriptures any longer, that we see it just in the order that the Apostle laid it out for us today? Let us see the beauty of that. The results of election for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkled by His blood. That's what God has predestined us for and elected us for. That is why the Spirit regenerated us. I want us to look carefully at this, the results of election, so that you don't reverse the order in your mind. I want us to see salvation in Christ. He says obedience to Christ. Isn't that salvation? You can't be obedient to Christ if you don't first believe by faith. 
That's obedience. You can't be obedient to Christ if you don't repent of unbelief and sin and turn to him and him alone. Salvation in Christ is a result of God's election. It is the effect, not the cause. Many people think it's the cause. And the effect is election. That would be backward from the way that the Word of God defines it every time. Election is the cause. Believing is effect that is produced. Salvation in Christ is produced because you were sovereignly elected, because the Spirit has regenerated you to obedience to Jesus Christ, that belief in Christ, following His command to believe. If you're sovereignly chosen by God, you will believe. People ask me all the time, how can I know if I'm one of the elect? It's not hard. Do you believe? Yeah, that result has been produced. God has done what exactly what he determined to do in eternity past. He chose you. The Spirit has renewed you and regenerated you to new life. And the result of that is that you believe in Christ. That word pistuo, to believe, it means to trust, abandoning everything else and clinging only to that one thing. You believe in Christ in that manner? Well, let me tell you this. You're one of the elect. How do I know this? Because of his teaching in John chapter 6. Verse 39, this is what the Lord said, and this will, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, this, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say now, I came down from heaven? Jesus says this to them, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. How are we taught by God? How are we taught by God about this subject? God foreknows us and elects us. The Holy Spirit renews us and regenerates us. The Holy Spirit teaching us. God in third person. Teaching us about what? Christ. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from Him comes to me. What is He saying? Those who hear the truth and know the Father, they come to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only He has seen the Father. I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting what happened there? Well, we like to jump to that last verse, he who believes has everlasting life, but read the ones prior to it. Read the ones where Jesus is talking about all who the Father has given me will come. There will be no empty seats in heaven. It has already been decided. And because it has been decided, the result is this, belief. If you were elected chosen by God, the Spirit will breathe into you new life, and you will believe. And if you don't believe, you pass from this life, you're not one of the elect. We must see the results of election, belief in Christ, producing repentance of unbelief and sin in order to follow His command. Is that not what Jesus preached? Mark chapter 1, verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. You know who repents and believes the good news? Those who are appointed unto salvation. Those who the Holy Spirit quickens. Those who the Father draws through the same Spirit. What is the result? Obedience to Christ. Obedience to Christ. Marked by a life of Repentance belief, faith, and trust in Him, the elect will repent. They will believe. It will be marked by a deeper obedience, a practical obedience. That practical obedience will be obedience to Christ. Following and obeying His commands. You couldn't do that on your own. In fact, you didn't even try to do that on your own. In this new life, you have a new desire, and that new desire is to obey Christ. Oh, the 
frightening words of Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 that many people don't like to hear. It says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's for all you people who say this. All you have to do is just say He's Lord. And you leave out God sovereignly foreknowing you, and electing you unto salvation, and calling you by His Spirit, and regenerating you to new life. You leave all those things out. It doesn't result in obedience to Christ. And people wonder, why, why do I, why can I never be obedient to Christ? I've professed Him with your mouth because you followed some bad instructions that said pray this prayer after me and everything will be all right. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Why is that so important? Because not only will the elect believe and repent, the elect will obey. Jesus himself said this, if you love me, you will obey my commands. In fact, First John, in John's first epistle, he says this, Chapter 3, verse 7, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he, speaking of Christ, is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue, underline that word, to sin. That means habitual lifestyles of sin. You won't continue there. Because God's seed remains in him. The seed that is implanted in you by the indwelling Holy Spirit remains in you. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. There's the rebirth again. It's not going to allow you to go on sinning. Why? Because the result of election is true salvation in Christ. Belief in Christ, repentance, of unbelief in sin, marked by obedience in following Christ in your life. There's a second aspect to the results of election. And that is security through His sacrifice. We have salvation in Christ, but we have security through His sacrifice. This is salvation that comes through expiation. Expiation is a theological word that simply means atonement. And not only has Christ imputed to us who are in Christ His righteousness, but He has expiated for us His atonement, His blood, His sacrifice. And that sacrifice of atonement cleanses us from all of our sin. That's the security that we have in Christ. That's a result of election. It produces security in Christ. Our security is in Christ, and our security is through the sacrifice of Christ. It is Christ who cleanses us of our sin, makes us acceptable before holy God. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, it says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. He's speaking specifically there to the Gentiles, but he's speaking to all who were separated in their sin. Either way, he's speaking to all of us. And the only way that we're brought near is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, through his blood. He uses this term, there in verse 2, sprinkled by his blood. He borrows that term from Exodus chapter 24. In Exodus chapter 24, verse 3. You see Moses, after coming down, receiving the law, it says this in verse 3, when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, he responded with one, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the, the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar the foot of the mountain, and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in the bowls, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the blood, the book of the covenant, excuse me, and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Sure. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. We see the sprinkling of the blood there, marking a covenant, as Moses said. We need to see that in our lives as Christians. 
sprinkling of the blood of Christ, securing his covenant that he's made with all who believe and trust in him. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 says this, but you have come to, you have not come, excuse me, you have come to Mount Zion, not Sinai, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, and you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the, the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We are secure in the sprinkled blood of Christ that has been applied to our lives. It speaks a better word. It is that blood that Jesus referenced there on the night of his betrayal at the Lord's Supper in Matthew chapter 26, verse 27. It says, Then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. For many. Who are those many? The elect. He didn't say for all. He said for the many. Those who the Father had given him were secured in their covenant by his blood. They were secured in that covenant, but they were secure in their cleansing. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 tells us of this. It says, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. and Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Were it not for the blood of Christ being shed according to the will of God. There would be no forgiveness for sin, but we see this. Because God had sovereignly ordained our salvation and God had sovereignly chosen Christ before the foundations of the earth to execute that salvation. In the shedding of his blood, our forgiveness is secured. We are cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ now and forevermore. You are in Christ today. Can I say this to you? Write it down. In fact, somewhere outside in your notes, write this. Capital A-L-L. All of your sin has been forgiven in Christ. He is the expiator. He is the one who has atoned for our sin. Securing His covenant that He has made. Securing our cleansing by that blood. Ephesians 1.7 In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of sin. And that forgiveness is forever. Hebrews chapter 10 in your Bibles. Flip over there so that you can see it clearly. Hebrews 10. I'm sure you're over your quota, but I'm going to read you 14 verses, so hold on. I used to have people tell me, don't read so much Scripture. When you preach, you're going to bore the people. If I bore you with Scripture... Pray that God would reveal your heart to you today and that you would repent. It says this, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never be, and never by the same sacrifice repeatedly, endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would, would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What he's saying here is this. He's saying if the, if the sacrificial system of the law could have taken away sin, they wouldn't have to do it every year. He's saying what it really is, it's a reminder that we are in need of a greater redemption. We are in need of a greater sacrifice. Therefore, when Christ came into the world... He said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. What was his will? That Christ would shed his blood and rescue all of the elect by that blood. Now watch this. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. Again, going back to the law, he says every day they do this, and it can never take away sin. Watch this. But when this priest, talking about Christ, had offered for all, all time 
one sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. What a statement. To know that I am secure because of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. And there is nothing that is ever going to take that away. His blood secures his covenant, his blood secures the cleansing that he promised to those who would believe. But it is his blood, most importantly, that secures your communion. It is his blood that secures your communion, your communion with the Father and with the Son, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, all because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. First John 1 tells us this. First John 1 Turn in your Bibles there. I promise I won't make you turn anywhere else today. 1 John 1 says this. Verse 3. John being an eyewitness of the ministry of Christ, even seeing Him crucified on the tree, raised from the dead. He said, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. We lie and we do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The saints, God the Father, God the Son, through the Holy Spirit, watch. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. Oh, would you be thankful today for the sovereignty of God in saving us, that we are secured in our communion, both now and forevermore, for all eternity, because of the blood of Jesus Christ. What are the results of election? Salvation in Christ and security through His sacrifice. That's the results. And so we ask this question, I know what it is. Why, why is this all important? Why is it important that we understand these things? Can't we just go on and not understand these things? You could. But why would God put it in His Word if we weren't to understand it? Why would he put it in his words so clearly as he has here in 1 Peter if he wanted to hide it? It's important that we understand these difficult teachings because God put them in his word. And because he has gifted men who will search his word and will find the truth and who will proclaim the truth unashamedly and boldly so that you can hear the truth. We've seen the elect of God, how He elects them, who they are, and why He does what He does. Why are these things important? Because they bring glory to God. And they bring glory to God alone. Oh, we can't take any credit for any of this, right? If we understand that it's God who does everything, right? It is God the Father who elects us unto salvation. It is God the Holy Spirit who regenerates us with a new birth, to new life. It is God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by faith in Him covers us by His blood sacrifice that He made on a cross where He atoned for all who will believe and trust in Him. It brings God glory when we see the process of election. Not when we dodge it and, and don't feel like talking about it. It brings Him glory when we say we're going to study the Word. We're going to div rightly divide the Word of truth. We're going to show ourselves approved workmen who do just that. It's important that we know these things because it is the Word of God. It shows the operation of the Trinity in our redemption, doesn't it? Isn't that important? It's important to me. God the Father elects, God the Spirit sanctifies, and God the Son secures. In fact, the Puritan Thomas Manton said this, election is ascribed to God the Father, sanctification to the Spirit, and reconciliation to Jesus Christ. 
This is the chain of salvation. And never a link of this chain must be broken. The Son cannot die for them whom the Father never elected. Please hear that. The Son cannot die for whom the Father has never elected. And the Spirit will never sanctify them who the Father hath not elected, nor the Son redeemed. Well, it's important that we see these things so that we can see God's limitless, boundless grace in our salvation. It's important that we see these things so that we can be like believers once were, totally amazed by the grace of God. So that we would fall on our knees in awe and reverence and say, God, I don't know why you would ever choose me because there is no good reason why in and of you. But there is a good reason why in the throne room of heaven. Because he sought before the foundations of the earth to set his affection on a group of people called the elect. And if you are in Christ, trusting in him and him alone, you are one of those. If you are not, perhaps today God would graciously call your name by his spirit, calling you out of darkness into the light of Jesus Christ, perhaps today He would save you from your sin and from the wrath that is to come so that you will praise Him for the glory of His grace. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to You now thanking You so much for truth, that truth from Your Word that we have seen today. Lord, we know to some this truth is hard to absorb because they have been taught so many things incorrectly their entire lives. God, I pray today that they would leave the teachings that are not consistent with Your Word. That they would cling to the truth from the Scriptures. That they would see how sovereign You truly are. How You have worked out every single element of our salvation by Your grace and for Your glory. May they fall on their knees and praise You for it. I pray that for the soul who's here today who does not know Christ and is in need of a Savior. I pray now, Lord, that by Your grace You would offer salvation to them through Your Spirit quickening them to believe for your power to regenerate and covering them by the precious blood of Jesus Christ as they surrender to you as Lord and Savior. May your will be done now. Thank you for listening to the Key Life Fellowship Pulpit Ministry Podcast. If you would like to talk with one of our pastors, please email us at info at keylifefellowship.org or call us at 281-689-1604. You can also visit our website at www.keylifefellowship.com. We hope and pray you have a blessed week, and remember, you are light in the darkness.